0: It's good to see you guys. We actually have people in church today. L- look around. Like, what happened? Maybe it's not a... Troyers are down from Dallas. It's good to see y'all. Uh, maybe it's not a holiday weekend. You know, we're kind of neurotic as people after COVID, as pastor types. We kind of try to measure everything, try to figure out if we're still alive, and so it's just good to see some people on a Sunday morning. Welcome to all of you. I want Trace job. I want a promotion. I want a raise, and I want to get to do the announcements instead of the sermon. It seems like so much more fun. Also, shoe game, nine, maybe nine and a half. Doing good on the tennis shoes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and he brought up something in, the, in his announcements that I hadn't thought about in years. Like, we don't pass a plate anymore. I don't remember where we buried that tradition, but it's so good to not have to do that, isn't it? You know, I think every crummy song I ever heard performed happened while someone was passing a plate at church. <laughs> Am I right? I mean, I know Elvis and, you know, Tina Turner and Michael Jackson all got their start playing special music at church, but guys, if I had a dollar for every rotten song I ever had to hear, it was the worst thing ever, right? Uh, if you don't believe me, trust me later. If you need a little bit of reprieve from the heat and you're a little bit depressed because the F1 race didn't go the way you wanted it to go, no spoilers or I'll choke your face, um, give yourself the gift of Googling Ocean's drum solo online. Has anybody, has anybody seen this? This is what happens to special music in the church when, every, when we worship the amateur status and just think, oh, it's so great. I'm telling you, cat paws on keyboard, Google Oceans drum solo. You will not regret it. You will laugh so hard, and then you will wonder, have you been spoofed? It actually really happened. Six million people have watched it. It's pretty, pretty impressive. So that's my little gift to you, a little homework for you. Oceans drum solo. It starts off real slow, and then you just can't even imagine. You just can't. So it's good not to pass a basket and still be financially alive. So good morning. It's good to be back in Austin. I was out of town a little bit. I took three of my five amazing daughters. Interestingly, I took the two that can't drive on a road trip. What was I thinking? There's only two who don't have licenses, and those are the two we packed in a van and headed to East Tennessee. Uh, Went up to see my parents. They bought a beautiful little place during COVID, a little place we call Mountain Medley, and it's a little beautiful acreage on a hill, and they're converting it into a Garden of Eden, as they always do. And, you know, I think God put Tennessee somewhat close to Texas so we could get away from the heat in the summer. Don't don't tell that to Tennessee folks, but they're really just there for us to go play and get out of the heat a little bit. Um, That's so rude. Uh, Anyway, but Tennessee, a trip to Tennessee reminds me uh, that the earth isn't actually on fire like one could be persuaded to believe given the days we've had. You know, there have been days in the last week where I've sat inside here in Texas and I've just looked at outside. I'll just look at it. It's like a jellyfish. You You don't want to touch it, but you can look at it. But there's no need to go outside in 108 degrees. Anyway, it was good to get away, where the evenings went down to 62, and the daytimes would hit a sweltering 85. You know how it is. We had a great time. I know, right? I know. It's okay, it's coming, it'll change. We had a great time, we did some cliff jumping, as my twins love to do. We did some hiking, some beating. We tried to figure out how does mom make that cornbread? I can't figure it out. It's so darn good, y'all. It's like the only food source needed. If she's making cornbread, you don't need anything else. We enjoyed a skunk family with five new baby skunks that eat from their bird feeder in front of their patio. I don't know how that's a good idea. My dad lets this happen. Anyway, we enjoyed the Queen Anne's lace, long walks, grandma's house kinds of things. It was a beautiful, beautiful time. And thanks to Caesar who covered base last week so well, it's a terrifying thing to preach. Uh, in, a, in a second language. I know that firsthand. And then, of course, talking about the Tower of, of Babel or Babel um, is, a, is a big undertaking. But we always leave you in good hands. Trey and I are generally not gone, and we're almost never both gone. So you hit us on the one-off week if you were here last week. So far in our summer preaching series, we've covered three subjects so far. We're about halfway through. We've covered creation, uh, the Genesis 1 and 2 stories. We've covered the great flood, the story of Noah. And then last week, the Tower of Babel. We still have a long way to go. But before we jump in today, the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac as a burnt sacrifice to God, which is a staggering story, I'd like to hear from some of you, and I've heard from some of you via email, but I'd like to just hear from some of you. Uh, We have Phil Donahue here with a mic. What what have you gleaned so far? What are you taking away from this conversation we're having in the Old Testament? For the out-of-towners, Dana, for your crowd, we're going to grab it on mic. Anyone, I'd love to hear from you. We used to do Dialogue Church every Sunday. Yes, raise your hand. What has this series meant to you so far? I can call you out because I can see you from here. Go ahead, Tara. I will say for me, it has made me realize that my faith is not built on whether stories are real or not. My faith is based on Jesus, and yeah. it's, all, it's all okay. Yeah, it's good. Good, love that. Someone else. What has it done for you? This isn't a chance for me to, be, to feel good about what we're doing. It's a chance for you to hear you because I know that there's deep processing going on. Yeah. Yeah. That the message may not be the story. The message may be more than the story. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Oof, dang, we can just walk away now. We can go watch the F1 race. Yeah, yeah, in conclusion, right? Musicians are coming to the stage <laughs> and sensing a, an imminent conclusion. Yeah, good. Someone else, someone else. Church isn't worth much if you can't talk in it, guys. Good. For me, it's a relief. A relief. Tell me how. Um, like, I don't have to defend. I don't have to defend it. Like, I can just, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. It wasn't the point of the story, was it? Can a dude survive in a fish for three days? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Someone else. Anyone else? Everybody's scared of this. Yeah. It's fine. We've got about three inches deep into the crowd here. We can, come on, guys. What has it meant to you? I've heard from you. I can call you out on email because I've been, I've been reading some of your emails. Yeah. Uh, I think for me it's been meaningful to do it in a group of people mm. rather than just on my own or talking to just my wife or a friend or something. Especially because as we go over things I thought I'd already been like, oh yeah, I know that. It's alright. I realize how kind of really almost bone deep this idea that it has, we have to get it right. Yes. Do I think right. the right thing? Do I understand? You know, and I find myself thinking about it and then having a little bit of anxiety of like, mm. well, 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 am I right? And then right. how do I let go of that? Because I don't really like that. It doesn't seem to help me very much. I love that. I myself. love that. So good. And it's good to do it in a group of people. That way you don't know you're, cra- you, you know you're not crazy, right? Isn't it a great relief when you verbalize something and you're like, oh, everyone in the room ha- has been thinking that always, too? <laughs> it's good stuff. Couple more. Yeah. I think a big thing for me was that uh, doubt isn't a pit stop in your journey. Sometimes doubt is there to deepen your faith. Oh my God, always, yes. In fact, it's the yin and the yang of faith, right? Like there, if there's no doubt, there's no, there's no real functional faith. What we have is memory and rote data, right? If there's no doubt, yeah. I would say for me that it's the value of these stories doesn't diminish and like the Bible as a whole, the value doesn't diminish just because they aren't necessarily like real. Yes, so good. So you know that I'm not arguing for a low view of scripture, right? I'm actually arguing for a very high view of scripture, but, but harmonized with other things we know to be true. We don't have to throw them out. Yeah. Um, just relearning the stories that yeah. they don't have to be literal. So the things that I've been taught to this is exactly what happened yeah. um, may not be. And so yeah. having to relearn that has been really cool and just having conversations around that. Good, good, excellent. I love that. I hope it makes you feel a little more curious and a lot more permission around accepting what you can accept and understanding that just because something is still living in our memory doesn't mean that it had to be what we were taught it could be. We can go back and find new meaning in old things. And in fact, that's the work. Yeah. Having been uh, feeling betrayed by 38 years of Bible stories (laughs) in my my journey, as I wade back into, you know, sort of relearning these and rehearing these, I feel like I'm hearing them for the first time. And... It feels a bit treacherous to kind yeah. of be back in these, but it's also, it feels like a safe space to, yeah. to be hearing this from a different point of view. And, you know, we joke that it feels like book club for us because that's the safest place for it to land for us right now. So Book club has always been somewhat safe. but you guys have been in some different book clubs than I've been in. I've been in some really bad book clubs where there's only one way to interpret that whatever. Yeah, yeah, good. Did you say 28? So no, no, you're 28. You're not 38. There's no way. I knew that was a typo. What else? What has it meant to you? One last, one last comment. Somebody's heart's about to come out of their throat and you know you need to grab the mic. Or maybe not. Oh, yeah. Goodness. Yeah. We got two. Okay. Two people's hearts. Good. I think especially coming out of last week is how much are we missing because we don't speak the language and we miss. The, we miss the fun of it, like, the puns and the and the yeah. wordplay. I mean, yeah. they're doing all this funny playing with words in the Hebrew, like constantly. It's yeah. and that tradition seems to carry on. If you listen to like, if you hear like a Jewish comedian or something, it plays out in the sure. English, but we we miss it in yeah. the Hebrew or whatever language we were take it all with. so seriously we take all the humor and all the poetry and all the puns out of it we just we just scrub it clean well we haven't always done that we've only done that since we needed it to be something that it could never have been david we'll wrap with you yeah and i think what it means to me is that all of what we call scripture has some meaning or yep. most of it does but not all meanings are created equal so it's okay to say that some stories are they're just less important to us than the story of jesus and right. you know, we start with that and everything else is sort of second tier yeah. Yeah. So good. So if it's your first time, thank you, Trey, Phil Donahue. If it's your first time, do you guys remember that long skinny mic? This is why the sermon's going to go long again. I went long at 9.30 because when I'm out for a week, I'm just so excited to be here that I can't go quickly. I can't stand my notes. So do you remember the long microphone he used to run around with? Phil Donahue. Anybody remember Phil Donahue? Please tell me. Please. Anybody, can anybody hum the Barney Miller show, intro, the music, the intro to the Barney Miller show? Never. I don't know why that has anything to do with Phil Donahue, but those were the first shows I grew up on. <laughs> This is why I run long, that's, that's my point. I'm gonna get fired, and then I'm gonna have to do the announcements. Um, but if you, <laughs> Trey once was the preacher, then they fired him and made, no. Uh, it's good to have fun. What are, we gonna, what are we gonna do? There's nothing to go do outside, you guys. You can die out there, so you know, we're gonna have fun in here. But if this is the first time, if you're just visiting us for the first time, that must have been an awkward conversation. Or if you haven't followed the series, it might be a little bit awkward to follow. And I'm sorry for that. But for the rest of you, finding new appreciation for these old stories, this is what it means to recover from the trash heap of biblical literalism, which I would suggest is the great heresy of our time. This is what it means to recover old stories and bring them back into life, dust them off and bring them back to life. And I think this is the work that we're doing. And I'm not, here's the funny thing. I'm not sure I intended for that, this to be the work of the summer for us. But it has become the work that we're doing this summer. And I feel that there's a wind behind it. Um, Most of you put these stories on the trash heap of forgetfulness your first semester in college. Because you could not reconcile the gap between what makes sense, what's actually, what things make sense, and what you were told that you had to believe, or else God would be super angry at you. Now, you know I'm no advocate of throwing anything away. I'm not a hoarder, but when it comes to theology and pieces of doctrine and things that have functioned for the faith community for centuries, I don't suggest we throw anything away. I'm all about repurposing and recycling and reimagining. There's gold in this tradition. There's gold. There's plenty here to go on. There's gold in lots of other traditions, but there's plenty in here for us to go on. And so I'm not suggesting that we throw things away. And if you've been around here for 10 minutes, you know that that's not what I'm suggesting we do. I'm hoping that you're finding so, uh, a a new freedom, a new permission uh, in the way that we're having these conversations. We're having them as a community, we're having them open. We're able to say, this is entirely unbelievable. I don't know what this piece means, but that doesn't make any sense to me. I hope that the way we're having them brings you some freedom. You see, we get to grow up together, and this is the message. You don't have to live lifelong on a diet of mushy carrots and peas. Now there was a time when you loved that, but who goes to a restaurant now and orders Gerber peas? Nobody. We get to grow up. But here's the catch. We don't have to feel embarrassed about those early stages of faith when that's the only thing we could see we, that was a season. And so it follows sort of the life cycle. And so we get to mature without feeling shame for those early stages of faith. Anyway, these conversations have felt refreshing to me. And I'm saying things in church now that I've always wanted to hear said. And that tells me that we're doing good work together. So I'm glad that it's connecting from, for some of you. Um, If you have some interaction, email me. Super easy to find, jason at austinnewchurch.com. I would love to hear from you. So our story today comes from the book of Genesis, where we've been for a while now, chapter 22. A tiny bit of review uh, before we uh, jump into the story together. Now this sentence is underlined, which means you should probably catch this. Exactly zero of the book of Genesis was written down by people who actually lived those epic events, and you need to keep that in mind. Zero of this is eyewitness account. Does that make sense? This is written down centuries later for the most part, okay? It was written in stages generations later as a way to gather the many, many pieces of written and oral tradition that existed among the Hebrew people. Remember, this is the beginning stages of their formation as an, as, as an identity, right? And so little scraps existed here, little stories, other versions existed here, things in writing, things in the oral tradition. None of this is written down as if it was an eyewitness account, okay? And you know what's interesting? I thought about this this week. Jews generally use stories to start conversations, to initiate conversations. And that's exactly the opposite of what we do with these, isn't it? Genesis was eventually compiled as a single story, comprising at least four different authors writing from totally different times, totally different historical perspectives. It's made up of many different things, but when it was finally compiled, we lost something. Here's what we lost. The fact that it it is a compilation of variety on purpose. That's how it functioned for them. It was designed to initiate conversation, not end conversation. This big concern to eliminate other versions of stories or other tellings of history, this was not its first and its most important purpose. That's what Gentiles do with Jewish holy texts. And We have to be honest about this. Okay? The big concern to eliminate alternative versions of stories like these becomes the primary goal of the 3rd and 4th century under Constantine. and He did it for different reasons, but that was not natural to the text itself. What we have here is very, very little internal evidence in the content itself that any one of these people writing these stories or compiling this material was saying, throw everything else out. Why? Well, because they preserved the very variety, multiple tellings of the same thing. Again, I call your attention to Genesis 1 and 2, profoundly different stories of the same event. We lose that variety when we need to use it as a way of eliminating other stories. And so that would be an abuse to the text, I would suggest. In many cases, as we've discussed already, these stories were borrowed and adapted from narratives that already existed in the cultural context around them. Remember, the Hebrew people were moving into a new land, and they, a land that did not belong to them. As Americans, we ought to know everything there is to know about this, right? I'm in the middle of about a 15-hour documentary review of We Shall Remain. If you've not seen it, you should. And then the epic uh, Ken Burns documentary called The West. And it's really a long telling of what we did to the original peoples of the Americas. We should know exactly what it means and how to make all the errors when it comes into moving into a land and saying this belongs to us. This is the story of the Hebrew people. They're moving into Canaan land and they're acting like it belongs to them because they say that god that's what God promised them to do. So but what, what's happening though is they're moving into existing cosmologies and they find the need to tell their children how the world works and how we came to be that's different than what they're hearing, either from Egypt or in the Canaan land. They wanted to add their own unique experiences of God, the the, the things that they had experienced in a powerful way, and they needed an organizational framework, or you might call it a meta-narrative, to shape the exploration and to guide their imagination of their children as they're maturing as a people. And that is, if they were going to affirm these new things to be true, they had to find somewhere to hang them other than Egyptian cosmology and Canaanite cosmovisions. When you think of it, That changes everything, doesn't it, when we need to explain something to our children. When your wide-eyed little tiny show up, that's when things get serious, isn't it? I mean, we all can stay up till midnight and have dinner at two in the morning and, you know, do all the different things we do until the kids are around. That's when Subarus with kayaks become minivans with car seats. Some of you have undergone this depressive loss in your life. That's when coffee tables made of cinder blocks and cool Navajo rugs become round tables with no corners. You know what I'm talking about, when the little kids are around. When your kids are kicking around all day is when water parks with lazy rivers and everybody's got a safe little flotation device on. That's when those make more sense than cliff jumping into black rivers in the mountains in Tennessee. Kids change everything, including perhaps most significantly, how we view God. It's when our wide-eyed little crumb crunchers turn up that that's when we have to start getting our stories straight. And I just point that out again and again and again in this series so that you remember. These are not eyewitness accounts. These are people trying to figure out what are we going to tell our children about how we came to be. Most, if not all, of these stories contained in Genesis can be understood as direct responses or counterarguments to the native cosmologies of the ancient Near East. Each story reworks, either gently or not so gently, was, was they, they did it to tell a new bit of something fresh about God and how the world worked, according to the unique experiences that they had as a people, a fledgling nomadic people group trying to find a place to put down their roots." And we've been arguing since the very beginning, Caesar and I have, that these stories in Genesis may read like a master-planned book written down with precise detail and chronological accuracy in mind, but that's not at all what they were intended for. The text as we have it is a collection of stories and traditions spanning many, many years. One way to know the difference in these different scraps that are woven together is to watch how they refer to God We're going to do a little word study here. This is probably why I try to stay clear of the Old Testament. I'm not strong in Hebrew, and I hate taking you into ancient languages, but we're going to do a little work this morning in that. You can tell these different traditions as they turn up in our text because they talk about God in different terms. You see, Elohim is the name of God used by the oldest parts of Genesis. You could look at Genesis 1. Eventually, after Moses receives the law, many, many, many years later, God would be referred to as Yahweh, which is this interesting little collection of four consonants written in Hebrew that was not supposed to even be verbalized. You you do understand this, right? That Jews would not even mention the name of God. And so they compressed these four consonants together to hold place in their text when they needed to refer to, to the God of the Israelites. So there was some evolution here. It's a funny little set of consonants that just stand in the place when they refer to God it's not even supposed to be mentioned and all that to say even the very name of god evolves over time is god here's a question for you god's self evolving well you'll have to answer that question for yourself what i do know for sure is that human language used to refer to god certainly is it's always in transition it's always evolving and I've been suggesting for weeks now that the best way to read these old stories is by looking for the innovations, the new bits of revelation that God, about God and the universe in them. You know, new ideas, slight improvements over the context or upgrades or twists, that sort of thing. And that's going to require work. First, you have to understand how the people thought of the divine at the time, and then figure out what this particular story, whichever one it is, reveals something that might expand or even explode that previous understanding in ways that lead to greater freedom. It's always going to lead to greater freedom, friends. That's how you know you're going in the right direction. That's how we read these stories. I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually making a theological student of you on Sunday mornings. You're learning how to look at an ancient text differently. So let's read our story and see what we can understand with this this new framework in mind. It comes to us from Genesis 22. It's a little bit long. Bear with me. Some of it should be familiar. And it reads this way, verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. And with no hesitation whatsoever apparent to us, at least in the text, verse three picks up. So Abraham rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac he cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him verse 4 on the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place far away and then Abraham said to his young son to the young men to his young men stay here with the donkey the boy and I will go over there we will worship and then we will come back to you Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife and i always wondered how did he carry fire i think he probably carried an ember like a coal or something like that. But Isaac got the raw deal. He had to carry the wood. Meanwhile, Abraham's carrying fire and a knife. That's the job I want right there. And the two of them walked on together. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I think this is the point where it's beginning to dawn on Isaac. Starting to look around, and he's having that wait-what moment. You know what I'm talking about? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together, and I'm guessing in silence. Do you ever look up at your father, at those hands and that face, and wonder, is goodness really there? Hmm. Verse 9, when they came to the place that God had shown them, Abraham built an altar there, and he laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac, and now it's beginning to really get serious for Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. No hesitance again in the text. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mountain of the Lord. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Bear with me just a few more verses. Verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will indeed bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the heavens and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall shall, shall possess the gate of their enemies. And you and your offspring shall all the nations... And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. And there it is, the story. Curious, before we move on, get ready. Phil, Donahue, what does this story churn up for you? What's your first, at the first hearing of this story, what is this, what, is this, what, what rises in you? Let's catch this on the mic. Mike's open, Yes. This is the one we skipped with our girls every time we went this through is the Bible one you together. I'm looking at your girls. They're right here. Oh, no, we can't skip it now. When they were little. When <laughs> they were little. You know, you're like, uh, I'm not going to yeah. get into that. Three. Yeah. Why? Tell me why. Tell me why. Why did we skip this one? Um, I don't think I had it worked out in my head, and so I didn't want to pass. I mean, it's just a yep. really awful story. Yeah. So, yep, 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 yep. yuck. <laughs> it's a crummy story. Okay. Who else? Who else? What comes up in you? think you hit, you spoke what I was thinking when you said, as we read it through the story, because my whole thing is, wasn't Isaac just freaking out? I I mean, I I kept thinking as a kid, we focused on Abraham and his faith in God, but my little mind kept thinking, wasn't he just going, dad is crazy? I mean, that fear, that fear and not understanding it and Did he fight his father to get him on? I mean, just all of that just doesn't make can sense you? Yeah. Can me. you imagine the trauma? Let me ask you this question in all seriousness. How do you ever trust your father again? <laughs> I mean, dads are hard enough to trust anyway. Ancient dads, I'm told, are probably even harder than the new ones. Mine, I have an ancient dad. Mine's super ancient. Mine's totally analog. <laughs> Difficult enough to trust as it is. Now he raises a steely knife against a dark cloud, and you're, the, you're tied to a pile of wood. I'm curious... How you could ever, like, this is the pre-trauma world, right? So, like, we didn't understand trauma at the time. We, uh, but can you imagine the impact on Isaac? No one ever addressed this to to us as kids, did they? Yep. Those Sunday school teachers never showed up. Yeah, someone else. So, for me, this was my least favorite, and I, it made me question, why would God ask for that? Like, do I want to follow a God that asks for that? Good question. Yes. That's a really good question. Can even this kind of God be trusted if this is their request? Someone else? Someone else? Some some way in the back? Um, As a mother, it just makes me angry at God. Yeah. You're like, how the hell do you ask for a child? You know, I mean, so you you hear about this benevolent God. Benevolent, benevolent. And you're like, what the hell are you doing as a lapsed Catholic? you know we had our missalettes and didn't really go to the bible that much they're like yeah yeah don't worry about that we're going to interpret it for you right they really kind of skipped over it a lot because i think a yeah. lot of clergy have a hard time explaining it so yeah you know we find it super easy to condemn now hear me you know i'm i'm into organic indigenous cosmology and especially as it relates to spirituality we condemn other cultures wholesale for, for engaging in human sacrifice. The story of our world, friends, is a massive, categoric rejection of human sacrifice as it surfaced in the Mesoamerican cultures, and yet the very beginning of our own faith involves a man willing to human sacrifice within his own family. I'm just saying, let's just be honest about that, that's all. But yeah, you managed to get hell twice into your comment. I love this. <laughs> We're gonna give the internet something to yak about this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone else, okay. Yeah, one more comment. Um, So there's definitely a level of guilt that comes from the story of like um, spiritual guilt of knowing as a mother, you know, my daughter turns 15 in a few days and I know that absolutely not. I can't imagine trying to tie her and being able to go through with it. Uh, I just know that I I would have to say, sorry, God, I can't do this for you. Right, right. I, I, I want to, but I can't. And there's a level of guilt of like, I know that I couldn't do it. Yeah. And yeah. I wouldn't want to. Like yeah. there's no there's no way in which I would want to be the person who could. This falls into one of the. I, there's a large box in my mind of of a, a receptacle for stories and the stories I put in that box are the ones like don't tempt me here god don't 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 ask this, right? I'm sure that's super compelling. You know there to was a, there was that mom that that killed her kids in the bathtub in Houston years ago and said god told her to do it. Yeah. She got locked up in looney bin. I mean that's just yeah. well you know, I wonder yeah. yeah, interesting. Let me ask you this question. We don't have to take the time to put this on the microphone. Why do you think this story is so significant in our faith tradition? It's one of the absolute uh, hinge pins of our whole faith. Why do you think that is? Because we're too focused on works. Because we're too focused on works? Yeah. Yep. So for those of you out there who want to know what Tara is saying, uh, the out-of-towners, she says because we were taught... to to more focus on the faith and on the works, right? Did I get it? Yeah. So, okay. It's a complicated story. We've been avoiding it a long time. What do you say we dive in? We could go a bunch of directions here, but there's something very specific that I want to use this story to give, give voice to. In English... This story sounds like we only have a few actors. Let me just name them. It's a simple drama. It occurs, you know, a three-day journey on the mountain. There's only a few actors. We have Abraham. We have Isaac. We have a couple of gods. We have a ram. We have some servants. Wait, we have a donkey. Wait, wait, what? We have a couple of gods, did I just say? That's right, let me see if I can explain this. If you look deeply enough, we're actually looking at the evolution of Elohim to Yahweh, and now we don't need to do a ton of Hebrew work, but I need you to understand this very briefly. Every reference up until verse 11, uses in this story, when it refers to God, or the God who asks that Abraham would sacrifice his son, Elohim was the word used in the text to describe God. But when the messenger of God interrupts and stays the execution with the knife in the air, when the animal is discovered in the thicket, Difficult time to be a clumsy ram, I would say. But when the animal is discovered in the thicket, Yahweh is the term used for God. In fact, interestingly, the text itself seems to put Elohim and Yahweh in somewhat of a dialogue with themselves in verse 16. When the angel who halts the hand of Abraham from slaying Isaac speaks, he literally says in the Hebrew, according to this text, that because Abraham was willing to murder his son to appease Elohim, Yahweh was pleased to provide a better alternative. Now, to us, it seems like it's the same God who is both murderous and kind. It seems like the same God who demanded Abraham kill the one thing he loved most was also the God who stopped the killing and sent the ram. It feels contradictory, to put it briefly. But what we're seeing here instead, in my view, I would humbly suggest, is the evolution of one man's understanding of God altogether. Elohim is a general word in Hebrew used to describe God. It's the same word that our Old Testament uses to describe the God of the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Ammonites, the Moabites. Their God was all called Elohim. All of their deities referred to in our Old Testament, they were referred to in the same way. Actually, to the consternation and the embarrassment of many biblical literalists, the term Elohim actually implies plurality in the Godhead. It's talking about the gods because the ending of a a Hebrew word, H-I-M-Him, implies plurality. All the peoples of the ancient Near East were polytheists, and so this wouldn't have been surprising. But just know that when Elohim is used in the text, it's referring to the gods. Whoever wrote down the content of Genesis 22 could have used the singular form of that word that would have been Eloha, but they didn't. They used Elohim. The most natural translation of Elohim would be simply the gods. That idea being, you know, the gods that lived in some other realm, in some celestial corner of a three tiered cosmos, of a flat earth, as they understood it. Elohim was the god of the gods that brooded over the water and the deep darkness at creation, for example. Which begs a bunch of interesting questions, doesn't it? What are we looking at here? Do we have two gods? Or do we have two understandings of the divine, both occupying legitimate parts of the human psyche, both featuring importantly in our tradition? What do we have? The story of our patriarch, Abraham, and the almost slaughter of his son is a wonderful story that illustrates the evolution from a stern, judgmental, exacting, demanding God to one that loved what Abraham loved. One that would never allow him to murder his dream to sacrifice his child. Which means this isn't just a bit of super ancient awkward history. It's actually, if we can see it, friends, the very same process we go through as we grow and age as followers of God. First, God is Elohim, all powerful and brooding and parental. Then in time, God becomes Yahweh, a personal presence that loves what we love, that wants what we want, that provides all that we need. Oh, friends, whatever you do, catch this, don't ever let this go. Whatever you do, never let your God stop becoming. Never let your notion of God stop evolving and unfolding with you. God is not a person. He's not a man or a judge or a frightening, brooding presence hovering over us, watching for our mistakes, jotting them all down in some mystical book to bring them up later when we stand in judgment before him as he casts us into some eternally conscious punishment, hell or whatever. God is not some pre-stone age, terrifying, unhinged, central surveillance agency. That may well be what our ancestors imagined. It is what they imagined to some degree, but we don't have to stay there. There's so much more that we've learned since then. You see, God is the very movement of the cosmos towards greater unfolding, towards greater becoming. God is not some ancient super person revealed to a certain few people who could build enormous boats or who were were willing to murder their sons in order to appease this God. No, no. God is the ground of being itself, of all being. I'm guessing that you, dear one, just like me, on occasion, in a thousand ways, sometimes get stuck between Elohim and Yahweh. I'm guessing that you, dear one, just like me, are still trying to let go of the God who terrified you with their power and might when you were young and hold on to the God that literally loves what you love, a God that simply loves the fact that you can love it all, an animating force that provides and protects and preserves. And here's what I want you to hear clearly from me today. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to either be Elohim or Yahweh. Our ancient text preserves them both. All throughout, some 2,500 times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as Elohim. Long after Moses establishes the law, long after Yahweh becomes the official name of the God of the Israelites, still the image of a warrior, all-powerful creator, Punisher God, Fire Sky God, like Sam likes to say. Still, that image is, exists, in you know, that God that existed in plural terms in a pantheon of divine might, it still finds its way into poetry and into lore. You say, no, preacher, now you've got it wrong. God is one, Deuteronomy says so. There is only one, you say. Elohim is Yahweh, is Jesus, is the Holy Spirit. It's all the same white guy, same dude. I wonder, I wonder, do you think so? What is that God's name? That's all those things. What is Where does that God live? In the heavens, in some three-tiered cosmos, or in your heart, where justice is done, where the hungry are fed? You see my point. I'm not arguing against the understanding that God is one. I actually think everything is one. I'm just pointing out that our text sometimes has a lot of ones to account for if you feel the need to compress them into one thing. And if we simply collapse them into one idea, one version or vision of God, then we miss the real point. And hear me as clearly as you are able, we miss the most powerful point, I would argue, which is this, that God is unfolding as we are, that there is a fresh version of God for every fresh version of you that emerges. The problem is when we change, but insist that God cannot. That's about a three-eighths of an amen. <laughs> I know the three-eighths measurement because it has to do with the cornbread I'm trying to reproduce from my mom's house. Buttermilk, they said. Buttermilk. Anybody cook with buttermilk? That stuff is straight snag nasty, but boy, in, in cornbread, it's divine. For every version of you that needs to know purpose. In direction and why you're here, a new version of God emerges. I don't know if that terrifies you. That should bring you great, great comfort. You see, we're still shaping and shooting words out into empty space. We're still spitballing, as we call it, picking up tiny bits of new information and revelation to add to all that we already know. It's about the accumulation, friend. It's about momentum and movement towards a deeper uh, understanding of ourselves and the world. Hear me. Truth isn't a thing, a once and for all accepted and believed in thing. Truth is a hunt, it's a pursuit, it's posture, a series of words and ideas that keep the wheel spinning, always spinning, it never stops. Truth is restless, perhaps truth is restlessness itself. Truth is the unwillingness to land ever, the inability to settle once and for all. Truth is the constant drive to know more, the divine human, divine instinct to have it all, to know it all, to feel it all, to experience it all eventually. You want to know why I think Abraham sits at the center of three great world religions? You want to know why he's referred to as the patriarch of all three? You want to know why he matters so darn much? Here's why. Because he allowed Elohim to become Yahweh that day. He responded to Elohim's demands in fear, but he also understood and accepted Yahweh's answer to his predicament. You see, he allowed fear to become love. He walked it out all the way around the bend. He grew and evolved and changed as his understanding of God did. Don't confuse that with perfection, friend. Abraham was far from perfect. No flawless people in any of these stories. And if you struggle to believe that, look back a few chapters and see where he literally lies to King Abimelech and tells him that Sarah is his sister, not his wife, because apparently she was a lot to look at. Translation, she was beautiful. He was afraid for his life. So he gave her as a sex slave to the king so he wouldn't be killed. Does that sound like faith to you? You can rationalize that all you want. Or read back a little further. And when he sleeps with Hagar, one of his slaves, because he and Sarah were struggling to conceive in their old age, instead of waiting for God to fulfill the promise of a son with Sarah, he just handles business on his own. And if you think that's normal enough, watch how he then sends Hagar and Ishmael literally out into the desert to die when Isaac finally shows up. Man of great faith? Well, maybe in moments. Abraham was not perfect. He was not a perfect pillar of faith, but he was real and he allowed his understanding of God to grow and to evolve, and that's what matters most. Here's a question for you. This is the question no one would answer for me. What kind of insecure deity makes a promise of their own free will to an ancient man who only wants to have an heir and then making good on that promise then turns around and demands that that same man murder his only son to prove that he loves you? What sort of deity does that? What is that? What are we looking at? Is God that insecure or unaware or jealous? You know what no one ever said in plain English to me, that little toe-headed curious boy with a burning need to know. No one ever admitted that Abraham, this adored and revered father of three great faiths, was acting as monstrous as the monstrous God he conceived of and the one he served that would ask him to sacrifice his son. No one seemed willing to focus on anything except Abraham's unusual faith. But what about his monstrous willingness to murder his son? That's not what good dads do. Abraham was willing to cut the heart out of his own flesh and blood that he'd waited so long for. But he didn't have to because his Elohim became Yahweh that day. If only he could accept it, which he did, as the story goes. You know, friend, the longer I walk with this God of ours, the more I think faith is the willingness to allow notions of God to evolve. It isn't about belief or doctrine or, for, or God forbid weaponized dogmas we try to hold on to and excommunicate one another for violating. It's about the willingness to come to the natural end of one version of God, allowing another to grow right there where that previous one was. That's the whole thing right there. I wonder, does that make sense to you? Does that bring you hope today? Are you between versions of God at the moment? Can I confess to you that I am and I think we're right where we need to be. This final thought, and hold off, musicians, just stay, you're too good to look at when you come up here, everyone watches you guys. The greatest collection of white men (laughs) ever assembled around music in Austin, Texas. We don't try to put together boy bands, guys, it just happens to us, what can I say? (laughs) This final thought, and I mean this, because you're ready for this, your heart knows you wanna do this next, so let's do this together. What happens if we lay over the top of this ancient story everything that we now know and feel to be true and right about God? What happens then? Was Abraham actually in dialogue with some theistic deity that lived outside of the material world, that lived somewhere in the upper tier of a three-tier universe? Or was this voice, this demand, this Elohim rising from within Abraham, which is, of course, where you and I know where the divine voice now emerges, where, 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 where we hear it. Was he in dialogue with some ancient deity? Or was he in dialogue with something inside of him? Did you ever love something so much that you feared losing it? Oh, this is everyone in the room. Did you ever feel like that first bit of opposition you faced to your ultimate happiness must be because of something you did wrong because God is now angry at you? Is that the God you were taught? Oh, it rings true to me. I don't know how to tell you this in any other plainer English, but hear me closely. Both Elohim and Yahweh rose within Abraham that day. He, like we so often are, was at war with himself. Two gods did battle inside him that day. And the loving, kind, compassionate God won out because Abraham allowed that to happen. And that's why we're still talking about this. Will you, friend, will you let go of the image of a stern, demanding, insecure, jealous God that terrified you for your whole childhood? Will you let go of the image of a God that you were taught hated your sexual orientation, hated your voice in church, hated the gifts you brought? Will you let go of that God? Will you make room now for the version of God that loves what you love, the one that loves that you love at all, the one that is love? That's the only question before us now, church. It's the only question. All right, musicians.